Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my BBC announcement thing. <laughs> you know how at the end of things like, uh, you know, Holby City or EastEnders or all those kind of things, whatever your choice of program is, it sometimes says things like, if you've been affected by any of the things raised in this program, you could ring. Da -da 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 -da. Um, I'm aware that over these last few weeks, we've touched on a number of things, mental health and depression and stuff around marriage and domestic abuse and different things. And, you know, we think we know each other, but we also have guests and visitors in our church. Just want you to know that you can always ring the number. <laughs> you can always email. You can always speak to someone. Um, we always have the prayer team here on a Sunday morning, but we also have a more intensive prayer team available if you need something that's not in the context of our church services. So, Please never think that you can't uh, speak about these things because you always can. And if you could communicate that to, that to other people that aren't here, appreciate that as well. Right, that's the announcement done. <laughs> so we've come to the end. Last one. Hashtag, do you know him? And so it's a little bit different this morning. We're doing multifaceted. Multifaceted. Hashtag, do you know him? Do you know him? Jesus, the one who is multifaceted. A couple of weeks ago, and it's part of the reason I asked Claire to speak this morning, I um, gave you a quote, and I was talking about Jesus, the passionate one, from Dorothy Sayers, and she said this, We have very efficiently paired the claws of the Lion of Judah, certified him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. I just love it. I think it's an absolutely fantastic quote. Because I think that sometimes that's what we've done. We've made him too domesticated, too safe. We've paired the claws of the Lion of Judah. And I don't know whether you would fit yourself into the category of a pale curate or pious old lady or none of the above. But we've made him safe. And he is, as Claire said, a lion. He is a lion. But you know what? He is not one-dimensional. Because he is the lion and the lamb. He is the lion and the lamb. He is both. He is not some kind of compromise in the middle. Some kind of wild lamb or calm pussycat. He is not either of those things. He is the lion and the lamb. So what do we do with that? What do we do with Jesus? He's the carpenter, teacher, philosopher, healer, counselor, prophet, priest, king, savior, and God. What do we do with that? I want to introduce you to someone this morning. I'm not anticipating that you all know who this person is, by the way, whilst you rack your brains thinking, I'm sure that I saw him on some TV program. You didn't. This is a guy called Derek Sheriffs. He was my Old Testament lecturer when I was at London Bible College. And he was uh, profoundly influential more than anybody else in my experience there studying my theology degree. He was slightly frightening, quite a tough marker but utterly inspirational as a person. He lived, uh, before he came to the UK, in Cape Town in South Africa. I was 19 when I went to theology college. I don't think I'd met many people from South Africa. So he had that slightly kind of eccentric, different thing. 
He was an amazing, inspired man in his teachings. And I loved the Old Testament before I went, and I loved it ever more. And I'm sure that you've picked that up over the last 20-odd years. There were three things that Derek said in the three years that he taught me that have remained with me and have formed my understanding of theology. And I thought that maybe today would be a good time to share them with you. The first one was this. Hold things in tension. He hated the fact that we always wanted to have a nice compromise, something in the middle that was safe, where we'd sort of sorted it all out and come to a solution, and it was all nice and neat. He hated that. He held, us, he held out to us things that were in tension with each other. We had a module on the covenant love of God. We also had one on God as my enemy. Haven't heard too many sermons on that recently, have you? He wanted us to hold things together in tension, stuff that happened in the world and stuff that was in scriptures. We're going to come back to those things. The second thing, and slightly ironic since I've put a black and white photograph of him up there, is that he always talked about color. He came from South Africa where there is a whole lot more color than there is here. I mean, bright colors. And he looked out his class in 1985, when kind of grungy stuff was all in, and we were all wearing gray, and kind of the gray end of aubergine, and brown and black, he said, you're so boring. What you wear is so boring. And he always wore bright colored shirts, or if he didn't wear bright colored shirts, I mean bright, by the way, I mean sunshades bright. He would always wear a really bright colored tie, or he would wear a really bright colored tie with the really bright colored shirts. But color was so important to him and communicated to us. And the third thing that he talked about was portraying reality. He was really a good photographer. And many of his photos were from South Africa during the time of apartheid. He said it's very easy for us to take a snapshot of what we like. But it is not reality. So we would go uh, to South Africa, I guess, and take photos of beaches and Table Mountain and flowers and all these lovely things. And maybe we would miss the township or the industrial site next door to the really nice view or the kind of leftover bits of metal scrap that were on the ground. Because I don't know what you're like, but I'm like this. You know, you kind of try and take out the pylons and you take out any people, preferably. Um, <laughs> and anything that's not the nice bit. But he said, but that's not reality. Reality is all of it. So those three things have stayed with me. And it's a little while since I went to college. And I want to use them this morning to explore what it means for Jesus to be multifaceted. But first of all, I want to ask you a question. Are you ready? How many legs does this elephant have? <laughs> How are you doing? Are you sure? You know what? If I left this picture up for the rest of the service, you would spend the whole service. <laughs> the whole service looking at this elephant and thinking, well, the back leg, that, that's kind of quite good, isn't it, the back leg? But is, it, is that gap or is that the next leg? And is, is that, does he have a front leg? 
Or is that, oh, that's, is that disconnected? Does it fit under his chin? How many legs does the elephant have? So difficult, isn't it? To look at that picture and work it out. You see, that's the thing with tensions or paradox. Things that don't have a simple and straightforward answer. Like how many legs does an elephant have? That's kind of what we're talking about when we talk about Jesus. Now, I thought I'd bring a bit of the men's gathering into this morning's service by quoting the great Graham Kendrick, who leads the worship at the gathering, because he wrote an absolutely wonderful hymn many years ago that captures perfectly what we're talking about this morning. Meekness and majesty, manhood and deity, in perfect harmony, the man who is God, Lord of eternity dwells in humanity, kneels in humility and washes our feet. Father's pure radiance, perfect in innocence, yet learns obedience to death on a cross. Suffering to give us life, conquering through sacrifice. And as they crucify, praise Father, forgive. Wisdom unsearchable, God the invisible, love indestructible and frailty appears. Lord of infinity, stooping so tenderly, lifts our humanity to the heights of his throne. This is, we might not sing it a whole lot anymore, and that's kind of fine, but it's so well written. To capture all of those things in a short three verses is really amazing. To hold together those tensions of who Jesus is in a song of worship really says something. Paradox. Paradox is a personal thing that combines contradictory features or qualities. That's what a paradox is. A personal thing that combines contradictory features or qualities. As I've already said, we have a tendency to take the extremes and go, I can't cope with that. So we kind of mush in the middle. Or we prefer one over the other. We can't hold them both together. We can't hold these things in tension, but with Jesus we need to. He is fully divine and fully human. Please put your hand up if you've got that one completely resolved. <laughs> when I was at college, we had to write essays about this kind of thing, and uh, I remember writing this essay, I might have told you this before, in my hall of residence, and I was next door to my best friend Nikki's room, and I was writing this essay, and every so often I get super excited. I'd like run across my room and out the door, and bang on her door, and go, Nikki, I've got it. Oh, no, I haven't. Hang on, I'll come back in a bit. How is it that he is fully divine, which Catherine was speaking about last week? How is it that he is fully divine, but he is also fully human? Because both those things are true and utterly essential to our faith. We have to hold them in tension. And if we don't, we end up with a half God, half man, and that's not right. And that wrecks our faith. We have to hold those two things together. He is fully divine and fully human. He is both ordinary and extraordinary. He was a carpenter probably for a while in his life. He fell asleep when he got tired after a long day. Anyone else do that? He ate. He wept. He cried out in anguish. He was ordinary. 
He responded often as we do, but yet he was extraordinary. The power of the Spirit of God worked in him that he was completely and utterly obedient throughout the whole of his life, not something the rest of us are great at. He lived without sin. He was extraordinary, but also ordinary. He was transcendent. He is more than, but also imminent. Another way of saying that would be that he is holy. He is perfect, perfectly good, perfectly loving, perfectly pure. But he is also intimate. When we see Jesus, we see him eating with all manner of people. In fact, they said, you're hanging out with the wrong people. You're hanging out with drunkards and gluttons. You're hanging out with prostitutes and tax collectors. He was completely holy and yet intimately involved with people. Most of us find that really difficult, don't we? We tend to take on the characteristics of the people that are around us. But Jesus was able to hold both those things in tension. He was tender and strong. Tender and strong. He opened his heart to people. He sat down with women, which was outrageous in his time. He was concerned about children, when children were completely nothing in that society. He reached out to the sick and touched them. The way he spoke was tender and open-hearted. But he was strong. He was born into conflict. He battled with the enemy throughout his life. He needed to be tough when the occasion required it. He was meek and authoritative. And we have that whole meek and mild thing. Meek equals weak, doesn't it, really? But meek doesn't mean that. Meek is the word that's used for the tamed strength of a war horse. So you take a wild horse and you tame them and you put a bridle on them. And that word is meek. That's what Jesus was like. Unbelievable strength and power but under control, he was meek, but also authoritative, authoritative over nature, authoritative over disease, authoritative over death. And he was compassionate and tough. See, that's what Claire was talking about this morning, wasn't it? What she needed was Jesus who was tough, who would protect her in that situation, who was like a lion, what Sean needs, needed and needs was a Jesus who is compassionate, who understood that he's messed up, who will draw close to him and hopefully someday heal his heart. Tough and compassionate, the lion and the lamb. We need to hold those things in tension together. He is not insipid he is not beige. He is not boring. He is multifaceted. He holds together seemingly contradictory features and qualities at the same time. Jesus is the ultimate paradox and beautiful for that reason. And we need to hold those things together as well. Whilst I was, uh, I was talking to Phil about what I was going to say today, and he recommended a film to me. I haven't seen the film Having read the write-ups, I'm not really sure whether I should recommend the film or not. <laughs> but I want to talk to you a little bit about it for a moment. The film is called Pleasantville. Anyone seen it? 
Phil's always seen every film that exists. Uh, Pleasantville, I'm quite glad none of you have seen it, actually. Um, Pleasantville is a film that's set in the 1990, where it's mainly about a brother and sister who are haggling and fighting over a remote control. Of course, that sort of thing would never occur in your house, would it? They both want to watch different things on the TV, and it was the days of one TV, so you had to fight over the remote control. David wants to watch a set of 1950s reruns of Pleasantville, which is a black and white sitcom, which is really safe and nice and is a good escapism from the realities of his life. As they fight over the remote control, the remote control breaks, and then this slightly strange maintenance man comes in and he gives them a new remote control. You're really wanting to watch this now, aren't you? At that point, they are both transported into the set of Pleasantville in the 1950s, where it's black and white and it's safe and everybody's life is exactly the same all of the time. And when they learn geography at school, they only learn to the end of the main street because their maps don't go any further than the edge of their town. Everything is tightened up and neat and safe and boring. And they enter into it and they bring in uh, different things connected to racism and gender and morality and society, some quite big topics there. And as they touch people's lives, sometimes good and sometimes not good, they take on colour. They become coloured in, in the movie. So variously through the movie, flowers take on colour and people take on colour. And whole situations do. And then they have this really big issue because the people who are coloured in are excluded from the people who are black and white. It all gets very complicated. And the point I want to make here is that Jesus comes and he brings different dimensions into a black and white existence. That's what happened in that film. They brought different dimensions into a black and white existence. As I was reading up this week, I found this quote and I thought I'd share it with you. It says this, Despite our efforts to keep him out, God intrudes. The life of Jesus is bracketed by two impossibilities, a virgin's womb and an empty tomb. Jesus entered our world through a door marked no entrance and left through a door marked no exit. It's great, isn't it? Jesus intrudes. Jesus is the color. He is like an injection of color into our world, color we never even knew we needed. We never knew that we needed. We didn't realize that our existence was black and white till Jesus came. He came and he brought color and life. Jesus is attractive. People wanted to be with him. They still do. When they know Jesus for who he really is, not a watered-down version, or not the version that sadly is sometimes displayed by the church, or people in the media, but Jesus, Jesus himself, is attractive. His presence is almost magnetic to people. You know, there's always people a bit like that, aren't there? But Jesus ultimately was like that. People followed him wherever he went. Even when he was trying to rest, people followed him. They wanted to be where he was. There was something magnetic about him, who he was, his presence of course, he is the image of the invisible God. He is God incarnate, God with us. This is what God looks like. 
God looks like all these amazing things. He's beautiful. He is the lion and the lamb. He's tough and compassionate. He's tender. He's authoritative. He's holy. And yet he walks with us in our mess. That's what God is like. And Jesus introduced the concept of the kingdom of God, of three-dimensional, technicolor living. That that God had made in the beginning that had been lost, Jesus said, the kingdom of God's near. A kingdom of justice and of peace, of hope and of joy. A kingdom where there is no poverty because there is equality, where no one is hungry and everyone is fed and everyone has clean water and there is healing and there is peace of mind where we're not at war, either with ourselves, with anyone else, or with another nation, where there is no crying and no pain and no death. Doesn't that sound like a great kingdom to be a part of? Doesn't it? Because when you sign up to Jesus, that's the kingdom that you sign up to. We won't see all of that just yet. But Jesus introduces three-dimensional, technicolor life for now and for all time. A movie that many of you may have seen, of course, is Schindler's List. We'll have hands up for that. Of course, as you've watched the film, you'll have uh, had your eyes drawn in the black and white, as we're black and white again, to the little girl in the red coat, because that's the whole point, is your eyes drawn to that. In the story, Schindler's Ark, which is the book on which the film was based, Oscar Schindler is actually riding on horseback above Krakow, and he sees the Krakow ghetto from the hill, and he's not interested. But his eye is caught by a child in a red coat, and his mistress says to him, it must be a girl. Girls are interested in colourful clothes, that's what she says to him. And he sees what is going on, he sees the violence and the emaciation, and the soldiers with their guns. And he falls from his horse, and he's wretches because it impacts him so strongly. And he's believed, as many people did at that time, that it's only an isolated few that are carrying out these atrocities, and that they're just doing it on their own. And he sees what is going on in Krakow, in the ghetto, and he suddenly dawns on him that if a small child like this is permitted to witness these kind of atrocities, it is not isolated individuals. It is something of the whole regime that is impacted. That these people are continuing their violence under the auspices of the leadership of the Nazi government in Germany at that point. He sees her, and he sees what is going on around her. And she is one, but she has a face and a coat. And she may be one out of six million, but at that very moment when he saw her, Oscar Schindler vowed that he would do everything in his power to destroy the Nazi regime. Seeing her is what changes everything. Seeing Jesus for who he really is, his kingdom for what it really is, is what transforms us and through us the things that are around us. No longer can we just say, oh, well, it, 
It's just this and that and the other. The hope of the world is Jesus, and the hope of the world is the church. And at the moment, we find ourselves in really challenging and difficult circumstances where there's much fear and anxiety and uncertainty, and there's increasing division, particularly between Muslims and others, because of the anxiety and uncertainty. Please don't hear me say anything else about that. The hope is us. The hope is the reconciler. Those who've been reconciled to God, who are reconcilers in this world where God has put us. The third lesson that I learned from Derek Sheriffs was around portraying reality. These are not my photos, but they could be. This is a hotel in Mumbai. I know one or two of you have been there. It looks pretty swish, doesn't it? Five-star kind of hotel. There's lots of those in Mumbai. When I went to Mumbai, I didn't stay in a hotel as posh as this, but I did stay in one that was better than what I would have personally chosen. And uh, I went in, I felt really uncomfortable having driven through the streets of the city. I felt even more uncomfortable when I looked out of my window because the other side of Mumbai is this. But when I say the other side, I don't really mean the other side because in my hotel, I looked out of my window and adjacent to our hotel was a partially built hotel, so concrete and all the steel and so on. And I was sleeping in my room and families, many families, were sleeping on the concrete and in the crevices of the hotel that was only partially built. See, that's reality, isn't it? That's reality. I was talking to Richard Clare this morning. He's been to India a few times. He said one of the things that struck him most was going through the city, through some of the slum areas, or just those that were by the side of the road. And uh, he was all ready for his meetings. And out of these shacks emerged men completely suited and women in absolutely stunningly beautiful saris. That's also reality. Let me show you somewhere a bit closer to home. The beautiful Yorkshire Dales, stunning picture that actually. See, this is reality, isn't it? But these people are also reality. And some of these people might be those who use our food bank. And some of them might be people that work with Ruth through our debt centre. And some of them might be people that go to the job club at Champions Church. And some of them might be struggling with depression. And some of them might just have been told that they have cancer. And some of them might have been bereaved or struggling in their marriage. Some of them might be fine. <laughs> but this is also reality, isn't it? And Jesus shows us reality. He doesn't just show all nice. He doesn't shy away from the pain and the mess. He deals in reality, the beautiful and good and holy and the challenging. Jesus is ultimate beauty and ultimate suffering. Many of you will have seen Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. It was hard to watch, wasn't it? And there was debate about whether it was it too, too much suffering, violence. But the one thing it did do was to tell us that this was no fairy story. This wasn't just a small amount of suffering. This was 
desperate. And Jesus was the one. He was the one that carried the cross. He was the one who had the nails put in his hands and feet and the crown of thorns pressed down on his head. He was the one who was separated from his father in heaven. He was the one who was betrayed by his closest friend. Jesus, ultimate beauty and ultimate suffering. Ultimate love. No one ever loves like Jesus. I guess we've all felt hated on occasions, haven't we? You know, when friendships don't work quite well and when people just take a disliking to you and you feel that feeling and it's horrible. But Jesus took the hatred of every person in every place, in every time, through the whole of history. He took all of that. Even though all he gave was love, all he took was that hatred from the world. The ultimate king who expressed his kingship through washing his disciples' feet. Ultimate glory wrapped up in a baby. Talked about that at Christmas, didn't we? Weight of the glory of God, the weight of the baby in Bethlehem. The eternal constrained in time. Can you imagine what that feels like? To be completely out of time, to see the whole of time, to not have a beginning and an end, and then and to be shrink-wrapped into time with all its constraints and frustrations. God with us. God with us. Do you know him? Jesus, multifaceted. It says in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10 that through the church, God displays the multifaceted wisdom of God. Something like that. Right? And that word multifaceted can be translated multicolored. It's the same word that's used for Joseph's technicolor dream coat. Through the church, God displays the technicolored, multifaceted, multicolored beauty of God. So we need to know him because then we need to show that to the world, don't we? Do you know him? Jesus. In all his paradoxes, do you know his colour injecting into your life? Do you know that reality that covers everything that we experience in our lives in Jesus? Jesus.